Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking the future of the agri-sector, a look back over the last four turbulent years and what themes and trends can we divine and then looking forward over the next decade, what are the paradigm shifts that are about to happen? And I think you'll find them surprising. Our guest is Robert Berendez, executive partner at Flagship Pioneering, an innovation incubator focused on human health and planetary health. Robert is the co-founder of a number of agri-tech startups, including Indigo and Inari, and has over 20 years experience in the agricultural sector. As always, you can really support the show by leaving us a positive review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. I've been excited about this episode for a while. So ultimately, we're covering the future of the agri-sector here and, and leaning on a, your long career within it uh, in various roles and, and the, the insight that that's generated. But I guess before we talk about the future of the agri-sector... It has been a turbulent last four years when we think about COVID, we think about the economic headwinds, we think about the energy transition and emphasis on sustainability, lots and lots of volatility and events. I guess, can you give us some sense of kind of what you think the key trends and developments have been over the last four years so we can start use that as the backdrop to what the future might hold? Yeah, no, no, very happy to do that. And I obviously, you know, the food production agriculture itself is a primary industry, and so uh, it will always be there, and it is affected by macroeconomic factors and political factors, as you describe, in, in various shapes or forms. I mean, the first thing to say, I think for me, two mega trends are, are clearly particularly prominent in, in the ag and food production sector. The first one is that all this turmoil, the war in Ukraine, the more recent political turmoil, disruption of supply chains, have principally led to commodity prices being at a relatively high level. So crop commodities are relatively highly priced and have been for for those years. But at the same time, of course, growers and the food system had input costs go up dramatically. Fertilizer in particular, seed cost, pesticides and so on, other, other key inputs, uh, you know, the, the diesel for the machinery and so on. So farmers' economics have been relatively good for some of these years, but also more challenging most, most recently because crop commodity price came a little bit more under pressure. So I would say a, a very typical volatile environment on a relatively high level in terms of pricing and input costs on the one end. On the other end, I think we have seen some fundamental technology innovation getting much closer to the market or even entering the market in agricultural production. We're not there yet with gene-edited seeds, but we're very close to that. And in some areas, I think gene-edited salmon, some gene-edited specialty crops, uh, this, is, this is actually reaching uh, the farm environment, which I think is, a, is, a, is actually a fundamental uh, game-changer. And we should come back to that one later for agriculture. I think we have seen a number of very interesting new technologies in biological space to enter the market. I think we have seen more precision delivery of compounds. And I think we have seen a, a more prominence of things like regenerative agriculture because the the one trend that certainly is countering all these activities for farming is of course climate change farmers are growing 
their crops uh, under very difficult uh, environmental conditions. And some of these conditions get more difficult, more droughts, uh, heavy rain events, heat spells, uh, and, and so on, that uh, make it uh, harder for farmers to deliver the productivity that the seeds and the inputs uh, would, would normally provide. And obviously, the desire, the hunger, may I say, for getting new technology to, 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 be, to drive yield in a reliable fashion in a more and more climatic change world is becoming more and more preeminent. And then last but not least, I think a mega trend is, of course, the drive for sustainability. And that uh, you know, implies things like pressure on reducing fertilizer inputs, pressure on reducing pesticides, and, and making sure that economic practices increasingly become more sustainable and soil health and water quality and so on are, are really uh, held together. And that has all accelerated over the last four years. Yeah, yeah. We had Robert Horster on talking about just that and, and regenerative ags. As you say, we're going to come back to sort of the, the technology piece and the policy piece in a moment. Just for a moment on the traders, obviously, a couple of things you highlighted there has been, you know, the the, the rise in, in national consciousnesses of, of food security and all of these various dislocations that have been event driven before we talk about the structural piece. And we obviously have seen excellent results from the, the traders, consolidators as they are, who have been able to sort of solve these challenges in time, space and form. Do you think that was sort of a blip, if you'd like, or a short-term opportunity that was captured, or is, is that a, a part of an ongoing theme that will play out over the next decade or so? Yeah, I mean, this is, of course, uh, in a, a question that is hard to answer for the long term. I think that in the short and midterm, I mean, if my crystal ball is not completely wrong, I think there's clearly something going on that we've always seen in, in, in some version of a deglobalization. Whether that term is, is overstated or not, I, I leave for others to, to judge. But what, we, what, you, what you've seen, and that's exactly right, is that the free trade from one uh, region to the other, the willingness to export critical commodity, uh, commodities in, from, from places like the Ukraine, India, or, or other parts of the world, as freely as we've seen before, wasn't as much there. There is clearly, I mean, national food supply challenges and restrictions that, that have uh, affected governments, and they're, they're more careful. And that creates markets that are more volatile in, in terms of pricing, that, that provide more local arbitrage. And I think some of the big traders in the world are, are world-class at, at their trading desks about identifying these opportunities. And uh, you know, on the one hand, overcoming the challenges and the hurdles, and on the other hand, of course, making money from it. So I think that's what's driving some of these results. Now, if I'm, if I'm looking longer term, I think there's, you probably can, can look at a number of scenarios here. I think first and foremost, my strong thesis is that the world, given new technologies entering the market, will be able to produce all of the food that the planetary people require. I mean, I'm, I'm very confident about it. I don't think we're going to have fundamental food shortages at a macro level. But of course, we have food distribution challenges. Uh, the food is not always produced where it needs to be consumed. Trading across uh, country border, borders is becoming and will stay very important because not every geography is, is capable of producing all the crop compositions and the menu that, that local people want to consume. And so in my mind, I think the role of sophisticated trading of grains in particular uh, is going to stay high. And hopefully, through technology, traders can also be enabled to trade more in, in, in specialty grains. 
So there might be a chance to move away from a completely commodity system to a partially decommoditized system in which specialty grains, grains with certain compositions, higher protein, higher fatty acids of certain kind or higher starch and so on are really traded. And that provides additional opportunity for the trading community. So I think there's an evolution in my mind and traders are, are actively working on, on reinventing themselves using more digital approaches as well from a more traditional industry. And I think that's going to continue uh, and accelerate actually. And we'll probably touch on it on the policy piece, but one of the challenges is that the reality of the traders solving these issues and, and, and actually being part of the solution is often against sort of public perception or political perception. And we often see markets shut down, trade get turned off uh, in these moments of stress. But let's let's talk about the interesting headwinds that you've identified that are perhaps a little bit hidden. And, and the first is this disconnect between finance and the urgency of solving both food demand, but also sustainability. Can you give us give us your your sense on that? Yeah, I mean, look, this is of course very close to my heart. I've I've definitely spent the last ten years of my more than twenty years in, in agriculture very much focused on trying to drive the invention and then scaling of technologies that uh, would make the the food system not only more productive but at the same time more sustainable. This is something, of course, that was seen as a as a conflict uh, in the past, because you know synthetic pesticides have certain profiles that that are not very much compatible with with sustainability. There's alternatives that do have compatibility. So you, you can drive productivity while at the same time drive sustainability, and that's something, of course, that requires substantial amounts of financial incentives uh, for the innovator, but also for the grower that is changing practices and that's to accommodate. Uh, you know, new innovation that comes to, to market. I think what we've seen, if I'm going back a little bit further than the last four years, I think what we've seen at the back end of 2008-9, which, as you well remember, was a, on the one hand, it was a financial crisis, but there was underlying a food crisis. There was a dramatic increase of food pricing at the time. And I think at that moment, the financial industry, uh, venture capital, private equity was really moving into agriculture, agricultural innovation to drive, uh, you know, new technologies and as part of this, drive technologies that would marry up productivity with sustainability. Now, this is 15 years ago. And what I would, would, would say is, on the one end of the spectrum, I think a lot of interesting, quite compelling and, and highly, highly scalable technology platforms have been developed over those years. At the same time, it's fair to say, I mean, no really big IPOs of these active companies have happened yet, which is not a complete surprise. It takes 10 to 12 years typically from, from early innovation to, to, to go in public, but, but it's still a fact. And I think the drive of the financial industry uh, in underpinning and supporting uh, you know, that next phase of, of agricultural innovation to come to market and scale in the market across the globe is is uh, hampered. I, I, I clearly, I think we could clearly see this. And that's, by the way, this is not agriculture specific at all. I think we we see a general, uh, you know, cooling down of the of the appetite to invest into biotechnology uh, of the last uh, eighteen to twenty four months. Much more of a focus, by the way, on uh, a subgroup of investors that are truly long term in their investment horizons that are really dedicated to sustainability and and regenerative practices 
And I think it's going to be tricky for some, some of the players to, uh, to come through this phase unharmed and even survive it. It's in, there's, a, there's an interest rate story there, of course, which really was the theme of 2023 for, I think, this podcast. We had Edward Chancellor on talking about this notion that low interest rates are sort of a root cause for the fact that money was flowing into essentially financial assets, financial engineering, you know, a lot of sort of pie in the sky projects at the cost of kind of the real world economy, right? So you've sort of had this twin hit of money not necessarily being efficiently allocated to the challenges and opportunities out there. But now we have high interest rates and that's had, you know, a further knock on effect again on some of these longer term, more structural issues that we need to solve. Again, the finance not not flowing. Can you just give us some sense of how interest rates have have played a crucial role in that story you just outlined? Yeah, I mean, they definitely played an, played an essential role, as you described, in, in many sectors, and very much so also in, in, in agricultural technology innovation. I mean, to be blunt, the last four years probably saw some of the more, most extreme roller coaster uh, rides for, you know, long-term uh, uh, biotech, uh, specifically agricultural technology innovation, that we've seen in a long time. And you, you can talk to people that have been in this for 25 and 30 years and they have, they'll, they'll, they'll support this. I think money was basically seen as being for free, which meant that startups that were basically having a long way to go to, uh, to generating profits or cash that would need years and years of further investment before they ever made it to market were as attractive as something that was basically already having profits today, right? Which, I mean, the discount rate, of, of course, was so minimal. That has, of course, fundamentally changed. I think we're, in all fairness, in my mind, we're, we're actually much more normal now than we were normal then. Yes. I think it was a, it was a bit of a bubble in, in 21 that was also underpinned by the enormity of, of the SPAC movement at the time, spec vehicles uh, to, to, to go public. And I think now, of course, future value is discounted to today with a significant factor reflecting the interest rates out there. And so it becomes much more preeminent for tech innovators to generate profit relatively early on, to not spend enormous amounts of, of money to get there and time to market in market success and profitability makes a huge difference for those innovators that get get financed versus the ones that are, that are getting not financed. Yeah, yeah. As you say, like the the five percent ten year note is the norm, and we just sort of basically forgotten about that. And uh, it's going to be, I think, it is a an interesting trend, and I think a, a sharpening of how these organisations operate. The, the 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 flip side of that and really interesting element that you've raised in our prior conversations is, of course, that there's a limited number of buyers for these innovations, you know, startups. And you've got more so perhaps in any other commodities sector, you know, real effects of a concentrated sector, monopolies. How does that play in? Can you, can you help us understand what you mean by that? And, and how does that play into this story? Yeah, no, I, th- I think this is a, a, an essential feature of uh, the agricultural sector that is sometimes overlooked in thinking that the similarities, for example, between pharmaceuticals and agriculture are very high because of regulatory and pipelines and products and so on. But there is a fundamental difference because the, the competitive breadth that you have in, uh, in, in pharmaceuticals is one end where you have 20, 30, I mean, world-class players, big players out there. 
while in agriculture through multiple rounds of consolidation against the, 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 the constant pressure of course of commoditizing uh, crop prices so crop prices always go, coming down meant that the pressures were very high to consolidate the industry um, and you know that probably was meaningful I mean for a couple of the rounds but more recently uh, over the last 10-15 years I think a few additional consolidations have happened that I think have basically left us with an oligopoly uh, of just three or four big players which I would call over over consolidated now if you are looking at the world through the eyes of an agricultural technology innovator then the question is will there be a point in time when the opportunity for a trade sale into into that oligopoly is really the the ultimate end goal of what you're doing in, in developing your company or do you have to have an alternative perspective on establishing yourself a standalone existence go public and develop a full platform that is able to deliver in, into the market on its own. And I think, you know, in an oligopoly, I think many players have come to the conclusion it has to be the latter. You have to have a clear view on developing your own, uh, to, to own your own destiny, to go public, to be able to scale this. You can do this with partners. Partnering, I think, is a big deal. And you also will find deals with the, the industry leaders uh, from the oligopoly but speculating, for example, as an investor, that ultimately somebody is going to pay you a fair price for what you developed in an oligopolistic structure might be a futile hope. We have been active, I guess, from a content standpoint, talking about the agri-tech sector for a, on this podcast for a while, but more crucially, from a talent perspective, you know, both the ventures people that sit in that oligopoly, as you described, but also finding and sourcing talent for these for various forms of, of agri startups the, the subtle hint here or the potential thread is that of course there are different objectives there the oligopoly as you described that you know make their money from a commoditized world right the commoditized and we're going to talk about this but just to put a pin in it right now you know that's the idea that these are commodities and they function as commodities and therefore you get the benefits of scale in terms of logistics and transportation and fungibility and all of the things trading houses do is somewhat misaligned with the root of current agri-tech in creating attributes and technologies that decommodify the sector right so that is that is also another disconnect there that exists in why these aren't necessarily having such a concentrated group of potential buyers isn't playing out well. Yes, I think that's well described. Now, if we step back from it, I think it's important to, to recognize that, I mean, we shouldn't blame the players themselves for coming up with a winning play within the current system. I think it's a reflection, not only of the industry concentration and the commoditization as such, but also in the past, from the fact that because of the, the lack of technology uh, availability, uh, you know, scaling more traditional types of approaches, you know, the storage, the transport, the file and fax machine to get the information from the farm to the food company and so on and so forth were limitations that you can only, were only able to overcome by, by traditional industrial approaches of, of scaling, right? So, I think we have a new basis for competition in my mind now that's developing, that's actually becoming commercial, that is probably allowing a different approach, a fundamentally different approach to this that will make some of the, the existing structures less necessary 
less essential uh, in order to still deliver you know, top quality food at a very affordable price. And these include, in my mind, different ways of how farming is done, you know, where productivity is, is driven forward, but the information about the quality of the grain, the composition of the grain is, is highly available. So you can specialize, you can basically decommoditize part of your production without extra cost. Uh, better ways of, of uh, you know, digitizing the value chain from farm to the downstream that makes the information flow backwards and forwards much more fluent and enable the, the signals that the consumer, for example, sends or the f- consumer goods company is sending about the kind of crops that they want to buy upstream, very visible to I mean, the farmer and also the trader, the, the co-op or the trader that basically handles it. And then vice versa, bring that information back with the grain to the downstream player, which again is another feature of, of decommoditization. And then last but not least, in the, in the whole driving forward of this, the question that I think is fundamentally there is, is if I'm, if I'm disintermediating then a number of steps between upstream farming and downstream consumption of a crop, you might actually come to a, a bit of a net zero game. In other words, you get better information about the grain. The grain is produced in a, in a much more regenerative way, sustainable way, which the consumer appreciates. The value chain players are able to deliver on this, but the, but the commodity price, the, the price on the shelf ultimately, is not dramatically increasing. And that is what I mean by this the marrying up the, the ability to produce in a more sustainable way while keeping the productivity up is probably the answer to some of these challenges that in the old days was basically taken care of with industrial scale answers, but in a non-sustainable way. Yeah, fascinating. And we're going to come on to you. You've got these three paradigms that you feel are going to shape the agri-sector for the next decade and beyond. One one final point when we just look over the last four years, where does, if anything, policy changes, policy shifts globally play into this? Are we, you know, you mentioned right at the, the top of the show, talking about CRISPR technologies, I guess, you know, the, the advance that we've seen in gene editing. Obviously, you know, you're sat in, in, in Europe where there's still lots of resistance to this. I mean, can you just give us some sense of that's shifting at all in the wake of food security, uh, climate change, the need for resiliency in crops and so forth? No, I, th- I think it's a hugely dynamic space. And I think, from, from my perspective, is moving in the right direction in, in a number of dimensions. And I, let me highlight two. First of all, let me pick up on your commentary about gene editing. I think, first of all, there is, that's interesting. That's, I think that's a breakthrough. There's a recognition that gene editing uh, is actually a, a targeted way of breeding because what you do is basically is reshuffling the genes within a plant cell exactly as you would do in any normal breeding process as nature as evolution is, is working versus the GM technology, which of course was around for 25 years or so, in which you were inserting foreign genes into a plant cell with, I mean, at, at least theoretically potential negative consequences. And so the, the political regulation of GM technology was be treated as a high-risk undertaking. You know, whether that's scientifically supported or not, it's a secondary question, but that's how policies were dealt with. While gene editing in pretty much every large geography right now is principally treated as a new way of breeding. They, they even call it new breeding technologies. And let me come to Europe last. The fundamental uh, you know, breakthrough there is that not only in the Americas, the US, Canada, uh, Brazil, Argentina, 
as well as in other parts of, of Asia, but also in places that were more skeptical about GM technology in the past, like India or Japan, parts of Africa, and including in Europe. Everybody uh, on the policymaking side is basically moving to this new green technologies. There's, of course, always a debate. And in Europe, with 27 member states, you will always have slightly different views. I think at the end, the European Commission, when you look at the latest results, I think will also treat it as a new breeding technology and make the market introduction through this much, much faster. So I think that's a, I think, massive policy evolution that I think is supporting farming to be more robust also against climate change and, and productivity improvement and very sustainably. So the other thing I would highlight is obviously the question of, you know, minimizing or optimizing, better said, the amount of synthetic chemistry that goes into a field. I mean, it's farmers will use fertilizer of some shape or form even in the long-term future. We're not going to completely get rid of it. I, I think we should not fool ourselves. But optimal usage, optimized amounts of nitrogen, phosphate, potassium in particular, also because these are valuable resources, is really, I mean, enforced through your regulation. So is the reduction of synthetic pesticides in favor of biological alternatives that are as effective as a protectant for the plant uh, as their synthetic twins. And so, you know, the move to biologicals, the move to reduce uh, fertilizer application, optimize them to what's needed is another macro move. And I think it drives innovation forward. It drives farmers to do the right thing, which they always wanted, but they only can do, of course, if the technology is made accessible to them and affordable to them. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. And this plays into the first of your three paradigms, which are presages, you know, a shift from arable, arable expansion to agricultural productivity, the price of food actually decreasing, which I think is a, a, would be a, a surprise to many, and then the role of decommoditization that we've touched on. Let, let's... let's just, I guess, expand what you've just been talking on. And you argue that it's precisely these technological innovations and the drive to sustainability that is going to mean that, you know, the, the world is going to get more out of its land use today in the future than it does today. I'm absolutely, you know, uh, convinced that in, in our lifetimes, we will see a dramatic shift of mindset about arable land needs and, and what we need to, to produce sufficient high quality food for what is still a growing world population but relatively soon post 2050 is going to be a shrinking world population i think we're going to see a move that is going to go away from this from this constant malthusian claim that we're not able to feed mankind from from the planetary resources which is basically driven I mean, on the one side, by the way, by distribution problems, that's a fact, and we need to work on it too. Accessibility of food is an important feature. But it's also from this scene, from this view that we have technologies that are uh, not capable of both increasing productivity and doing it sustainably so that we're degrading farmland all the time, we're polluting water all the time, even oceans, you know, through, through over-fertilization 
and we're basically killing the biodiversity. Now, the trend line that I'm seeing from, from products that are in fields, in greenhouses and in fields, so real, they're, they're not theoretical and they're not pre-lab stage, but they're real, they're in our hands already, which is gene-edited plants, which is new biological treatments, which is deeper insight into, into farming practices, Let's me to believe that actually by the end of this decade, we could run the world economic system with less land than today and produce more food from it. Uh, now, the biggest question between now and us getting there to even reduce global, fo- I mean, agricultural land for food and feed production by a third will be fast deployment of these technologies, globally scaling them, getting them into every farmer's hand on every acre and every farm worldwide. That, of course, is a task that is still ahead of us. But from a food production perspective, I think this, the constant drive that we had to basically take highly valuable land, deforest it, convert it into agricultural land as a means to, to uh, you know, get enough food in the hands of people uh, uh, with limited productivity is going to change. And we're about to see it changing. So I'm, I'm quite optimistic about that. Obviously, when you kind of look at the, the the energy transition decarbonization goals, kind of the god of the gaps is is for the most part either technology is yet to be developed, fusion, or actually really it's biofuels, right? That really is particularly in things like aviation and, and heavy transport. Do you think that land will convert back to to nature, to whatever we want to do with it, or will, will that be turned over, do you think, to increasing biofuels production? I think that's probably a hard question to answer. Well, that's... An excellent question. And I think it's, it's going to be, uh, 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 of course, partially be influenced by, by global needs, uh, policy changes and, and other technology developments. But let me make a few predictions about things that will happen there. First of all, I think it's very important to recognize that agriculture today, both from the farmland and grassland perspective, as well as from livestock, is still a emitter of CO2, of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, methane in particular. Um, we will see this revert. Agriculture is going to become the biggest natural carbon sink across the planet on the many billions of acres of farmland and grassland that we have. And it will be done through regenerative practices, optimized feed for cattle and other means uh, for this. Sometimes you're going to see agroforestry combinations uh, but most of that will be classical productivity farmland done in regenerative ways in which you're going to enhance soil carbon, which I think is going to be a major contribution. We're talking about multiple gigatons per year that agricultural farmland can capture. And it will make a major contribution to, to CO2 uh, sequestration at a global level and help on the reversal of climate change and, and, and as, we, as we talk about it. That's one thing. The second thing is, because of the fundamental productivity increases that we're going to see in food and feed grains and the need for less of the agricultural land to be used for that, exactly as you say, I think we have now choices. We're creating alternatives. First of all, farmers that will hold the land that will have productivity of the grain will actually make more money per acre. So I mean, this is not necessarily a social problem that farmers are not making money. They're going to make very good money on the agricultural land and, and the land is going to be more valuable. And then you can have alternatives. And I don't think it's going to be, I mean, one size fits all here. I don't think it's going to be all go into biofuels or all go into to back to forestry. Uh, it will be based on much better information on a by field, by acre level, 
it would be very specific decisions. In some geographies where, for example, there will be a, a, a huge commitment to sustainable airline fuels, right? In, in highly mobile applications, sustainable uh, fuels might be a, a key answer. And sustainable airline fuels, I think, is one of them. The United States already, I think, has set itself a goal of 30 billion gallons of this by the end of the decade. So some of the farmland that will be freed up from food and feed productivity can be used for this. There will be other parts of the world in which it's more smart to, to reforest it. Uh, and it will be other parts of the world in which also my prediction clearly in the next decade, the green resources will be used as, uh, as renewable resources into the chemical industry. Because it's fine to see that fossil fuels are reduced and renewable energy gets uh, instead. But the chemical industry relies on carbon-carbon bonds, ultimately. That's what they're really using to produce all these uh, products that they have. And an alternative source of fossil fuels is plants themselves. I mean, every fossil fuel, by the way, was, was a plant someday in, 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 in ancient history. So I think that's another area of production that we might see. So not only for fuels, but also as a feedstock into the chemical industry. But I'm not sure, you know, the percentage of which, as I said, that will depend on the balance between the need on the one end and the available acres on the other end. This all ties up again to this idea that, you know, I think if you were to take a poll today, you know, including me, we'd all, we'd all predict that food prices are going to rise in this world of deglobalization, um, environmental uncertainty that has greater impacts on, on crop production, harvests around the world. That was particularly seen in, in 2023. You know, we would all assume that prices are going up. But your long-term argument is that they're going to go down, and you've obviously weaved some of those threads together. But can you just give us a few words on that? Yeah. I mean, first of all, let me not come across as if I'm ignoring uh, short-term inflationary pressures. Um, I, I, I do recognize them, and, and they're hard. I mean, and, and some dairy products and, and, and vegetables and so on have, have certainly got, uh, gone up in price in the short term. But when you step back from it, and when you look at the long-term trends, for example, of grain pricing, nominally, so excluding inflation for a moment, then actually commodity prices, commodity grain prices have gone down and they have, and they have come down quite substantially, I mean, over the, over the decades with an industrialization of agricultural production. Industrialized agricultural production might not be the most fashionable picture that the typical consumer has about how farming happens, but it's actually the reality of, of a very productive system that if we turn it more sustainably, and more productive at the same time is should be very desirable, as we just discussed. And I think when I'm looking at a value chain that's going to be further digitized, in which the information and the data about the, the specific uh, economic practices on a field, the quality of the seeds and the productivity of the seeds, and the, the yield on a per acre base is going to drive be, be, be going up further, I think the only way commodity grain prices are going to go in the future is also, also further down. Now, there's, of course, always a limit to this because there's input costs on farm inputs itself, machinery, and so on. But I think we've seen it now for decades and decades. And I think the assumption for going forward is, is a meaningful one to say, well, there's going to be a downward pressure uh, increasing um, on commodities in the future. And let me just finish this chapter just by saying it doesn't necessarily mean as is often assumed that the quality of grain goes down with the price that's not my thesis my thesis is a different one my thesis is that 
the the way we run the agricultural production chain and the food chain step by step through i mean better interactions better information flows better data application is such that the quality of grain is going up while the price is coming down now again that might sound like a conflict but it of course can be done if we are scaling the technologies that we have already available worldwide that's a big task it's not going to happen in every geography at the same time I think some of the developing markets we need to focus our attention on quite a lot. I would call out Sub-Saharan Africa, for example. But when I see, for example, some of the work that we're doing in India on the ground with small river farmers, it's amazing how much productivity and sustainability improvement you can, you can make happen there at the same time. And then the, this, this final paradigm is one that I think has, has certainly been discussed a fair amount, both within HC Group and, and various of our clients, but also on the podcast as well, is this and we we started off talking about it this this push to decommoditization which i guess is what i as i understand it is that the the attributes of a commodity not you know not least quality but also how and where it was produced you know this idea that when it comes to biofuels the content of various oils within it etc means that you know we're going to be moving away from this fungibility one size fits all so can you just, am I right in, the, in describing that? And we're seeing the same thing, as I mentioned, in metals. We're even seeing it in some of the energy products as well. Am I right in that description? And then secondly, can you help us understand, because that would have a profoundly cascading effect on the nature of commodity markets as they stand today. No, I, I, I think that the, the paradigm that you outlined, I think uh, I strongly subscribe to. And I would say, it's of course, again, it's a spectrum. It's a range, right? I mean, at the one end of the spectrum, for example, and heavily feed-focused crops like a lot of the white, uh, the yellow corn and, and some of the soybean, you, you're probably going to optimize for the animal feed so that you can, for example, reduce greenhouse gas emissions from livestock and, and also the, the quality um, of, of meat production uh, from it um, substantially um, so that the whole I mean, livestock production system becomes also more sustainable also from an animal perspective. So I think that's one end of the spectrum. I think the decommodization that will happen, but I don't think it's going to be that dramatic. But when it comes to food crops, and then also to specialty crops like vegetables and perennial crops like trees and tree nuts and, and fruit and so on, I think we're going to see a dramatic decommodization happening. And the first thing, of course, you know, as you said, is you have to have the agents, you, I mean, the traders, the producers themselves, the traders themselves, the, the transporters and so on, being enabled to, to preserve the identity, the unique identity of a certain grain, of a certain uh, vegetable or fruit crop, from the moment of production to the moment of delivery. And I always tend to say that, you know, in the moment of harvest, every field of agricultural production is a, is a specialty. Then we're commoditizing it. Com commoditization is an active process. It's not happening naturally. It's an active process. So imagine we have all the data available for the way we produce the wheat, or the rice in a certain field, the orange in a yard, uh, or the olives on the trees, the vegetables in, for example, a uh, indoor farming system around certain geographies, also towards regional supply. I think we're going to see an explosion in my mind, a positive explosion of, of opportunity to trade decommoditized food products into the market. And as I said, I think the biggest success factor in this is going to be cost. I'm not a big believer that consumer sentiment is going to drive this. Consumer sentiment is in the right direction. 
but consumers often say one thing and then they purchase something else. What I think is going to drive this is to make it available through a system that is cost-efficient as well as more sustainable and more specialized. So we need to square the circle again. And I think from my perspective, because of information, data, technology, and also inputs, and, and also the farmers are ready for this, I think we're going to see this, I mean, dramatically uh, expanding. And the agents, as you said, the traders in particular, uh, will be, I think, keen to go into specialty because it provides unique opportunity. You can create new market segments. You can create new uh, regional supply opportunities. You can create more international supply opportunities. It's going to change their systems and it's going to challenge them in the transition. But I think that's where, where the whole system is going to go. There is the challenge there where, where those organizations have tried to do that. It's it's quite hard, I think, from a talent perspective to sort of thread that needle from kind of that wholesale mindset, you know, low investment to, to these specialty areas. But, you know, I'm sure that's a, a challenge that can be overcome. And I guess as well, and, this, you know, we have seen some stumbles here in 2023 as well. You know, the technology, particularly the use of blockchain, proposes the perfect solution to be able to capture these attributes efficiently and keep them ID'd. Some of those early starts, those, um, you know, consortiums have stumbled as well, though, right? I mean, it's, there is sort of this element of resistance, there's this element of the technology not quite there. Can you just, is that a fair statement, do you think? Yeah, I think you're, you're pointing your finger on two critical accelerators and key factors of success, if I may say. And one is, of course, the question of, you know, I mean, the, 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 the flawless implementation of new technologies, the distributed ledger, as you say, information flows across multiple agents and basically upgrading existing technology platforms and systems with new ones uh, without making, making mistakes and so on. Innovation, transition of innovation at that scale, transformational things always take more time than, than predicted in the short term and then in the long term make more fundamental things happen than we ever imagined. You know, that's a classical paradigm. So I think some of the things that we've seen uh, where we dropped the ball uh, on, on certain areas uh, have to be overcome. And everybody who has ever started the company knows the, the roller coaster. I mean, an individual company as well as an industry segment goes through, uh, you know, the, the enthusiasm in the early days, then the total kind of despair when it gets really tough. And then at the end game, I mean, a transformed system that is really working better than ever before and ever imagined. Which leads me to the second factor, which is talent. I think you mentioned it a couple of times, Paul. I think um, the industry is very big at the one end of the spectrum, the ag and food industry, and, and very small at the other end of the spectrum. So I think one of the key developments that will continue to drive the transformation of this industry is uh, the right combination between experienced industry players that have been around for decades and see the the weaknesses of the system from within and have the willingness to change it. But then, of course, the injection of new talent from other industries and, of course, a next generation of leaders coming in with their own ideas, ambitions, vision of for change and, and, and optimization. And if we get, get that done, and that hopefully affects both the, the oligopolistic leaders as well as the startup environment, I think then some of these changes will, 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 will in the midterm at least, will be even faster and, and more wider reaching than, uh, than we've talked about today. That's, it's always amazing how the injection of new talent and new thinking is uh, accelerating fundamental technology.
part of what we've advocated here and on this podcast is that if you want to make an impact or a true impact on the energy transition, on decarbonisation and sustainability, it's these sectors that you need to join, right? Not the tech sector, etc., where a lot of these things are very much hidden, even though they're incredibly impactful on the environment. And so I do think the whole sector as a, as a, as a whole needs to be better at advocating for new talent to be joining as this being the place where the most change can be affected. Oh, I could not agree more, Paul. And, and, and let me say one thing. One of the most enriching experiences are when you work with farmers, your farmer customers, and many of them are, are, are highly tenured. I mean, the average age of farmers in many geographies is somewhere between 55 and 60. But then you see the next generation coming. There are kids people returning from the city into rural areas, wanting to become farmers, and the energy that they're bringing into taking the system to that next level. And then when the current generation with the next generation is working together. And I think that's illustrated on the farm level. And of course, it's illustrated all the way through down to the consumer angle as well. And consumer and, and next generation consumers are also growing up and, and, and having specific demands. And ideally, by the way, they combine the demands with a level of insight on what's, what's achievable. That is a little bit, of course, you know, that the challenge of many farmers, even my own challenge with some of the demands from, you know, urban populations that think, I mean, the future of farming, uh, you know, looks like like a roof garden, right? Maybe somewhere, but the general system has to work and, has to, and it has to, of course, be uh, a sustainably productive system. And, and my hope clearly goes to the next generation of scientists, of innovators, of entrepreneurs, uh, that will drive this together with the farmers of the world because the farmers are fundamentally ready to change for the better. That's what they do. Leave every every acre better. That's the fundamental driver for them. Well, perhaps we, in some small microcosm of a way, advance some of these trends by, by you highlighting them. And obviously, it's fascinating to have you on, given your position within the, the agri world at large and, and the, the, you're at the forefront of many of these trends. So, Robert, hopefully we can have you back on in a, a year or so or two years and see where we stand. But I thank you very much for the insight and it's been fascinating. Thanks a lot, Paul. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www hcgroup.global There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.